If you're on Facebook, you probably already know this, but the show's in danger. I got a terrible message today from Amazon letting me know they're canceling the payment system that the BHP relies on for memberships. And they're not just canceling the method of signing up, they're actually actively canceling all of your existing BHP memberships on the 1st of June. Meaning that they're ending all of your memberships regardless of what you or I want. And that means that in less than two months, the BHP won't have any members and it will cease to be on June 1st. That's a problem for me because we're just getting to the Vikings. And honestly, I plan on taking this show through to World War II. So we're going to try and fix this. The BHP community has been extremely supportive. But I really need you to go back to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign up for membership again. And if you haven't signed up before please consider joining now. Not everyone is going to hear this in time, and we really need as much help as we can get. We're running the memberships through PayPal now, since they don't appear to be going anywhere, and they are allowing us to continue with our two membership options, monthly and yearly. So if everything works out, there won't be much of a change for you when you sign back up, other than you'll get a receipt from PayPal rather than Amazon. And if you're a non-US member, it actually should work out to be a little bit cheaper for you because you won't get hit with all the conversion fees that Amazon slaps on there. Now, if you're already a yearly member, I want you to know that I'll honor your subscription for the rest of your year, regardless of what Amazon has done. But please consider joining back up with PayPal. If you signed up previously for a yearly membership with Amazon, just email me and let me know and I'll refund your prorated amount on your Amazon membership when you sign back up for a yearly PayPal membership. So that way, everything's square, you're not being double billed. But I do have to do this by hand, so please make sure you reach out to me. Guys, I'm going to be honest with you here. Getting this news was enough to make me cry. I spent four years of my life building the BHP into what it is today. And many of you have been with me since day one. I know your names. I've written with you and your family. I've even met some of you in person. This has been the single most meaningful experience of my life. And I can't believe it's at risk of going away, all because some executive decided to cancel a payment program and give us less than two months notice. It was probably a minor agenda point in their boardroom, but it's everything to the BHP. And while I can't make Amazon reconsider, I really don't want the BHP to end. I mean, we're just getting to the fun stuff. So please, go to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign back up. Thanks. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 159, an AFA end. Usually, this is where I give my pitch for membership. Instead, if you're one of the Amazon members who will be canceled in June, please consider signing up through PayPal. And if you aren't, please consider joining. Thank you so much to all the wonderful members who've already signed back up through PayPal, including the McCartney family, hi Ewan, Shannon in Seattle, Tiago, Marianne, and of course, the ever-supportive Julie, who's always in my corner on Facebook and Twitter. And here's a sample of what they're listening to on the members feed this week. And the first thing to know is that the lands inhabited by the Norse were pretty much self-sufficient and quite remote, at least when viewed by the cultures that dominated Europe. Now that's important because it allowed the Nordic communities to develop along their own paths. There was something unique happening there. 
And it was that sense of the other that cannot be missed whenever we read accounts of the Norse by European writers. They really were quite alien to many of the monks and scribes who were based in Britain and elsewhere. Now, the other thing to note is that there wasn't a single overarching kingdom, culture, or religion in this region during the Viking Age. There isn't something that we can point to and say, all the Norse believed this, or even all the Norse lived this way. Because the geographical distances and physical and social boundaries between the people could be so great, there was a great deal of variation between the communities. For example, not everyone worshipped the same gods. And I probably should repeat that, since it will solidify what I'm talking about here. Not all Vikings believed in Thor. So, if you'd like to hear more, head over to the BritishHistoryPodcast.com and sign up. And if you'd like to be part of the raffle to get a copy of Civilization 4, don't forget to use the offer code Jamie's having a heart attack due to Amazon being jerks, but he won't have to move into his parents' basement because we're going to have his back on this. All right, that might be kind of a long offer code, so let's simplify it. If you sign up with PayPal, you'll automatically be entered in the raffle. Okay, let's start with Christmas Day, 795. That's the day Pope Hadrian died. So, uh, Merry Christmas? Hadrian was actually a pretty decent pope. Not Pope Francis-level awesome, though really, who is? But he was still pretty good. And upon hearing of his death, Charlemagne commissioned Alcuin to write a poem that was carved into a black marble gravestone that said, quote, I shed tears for the father. I, Charles, had these verses written for him. I weep for you, father, with my heartfelt love. I unite the names with shining titles, Hadrian and Charles. I, a king, you, a father. You who pray here and read these humble verses, speak. God, show mercy and take pity on these two. End quote. Every time I think I can't be surprised by Charlemagne, he does it again. Because this is quite the self-serving epitaph. Nothing about Hadrian's work, but instead, Charlemagne is simultaneously asking for people to pray for him, even at the Pope's grave, while basically pointing out that the reason the Pope was important was that someone as important as Charlemagne was saddened by his death. I know only children get a bad rap, but Charlemagne was making a really good argument that eldest kids are kind of prima donnas. But patting himself on the back for having feelings wasn't the only thing that Charlemagne was up to in the 790s. He was also focused like a laser on a continental empire that you might never have heard of. The Avars. The Avars were a central European nomadic confederacy of Turkic people who were ruled by a Kagan. They lived in a region just south of the Carpathian Mountains and practiced Tengriism. Now, the Avar Kaganate had been influencing Europe for quite some time, and they ruled over an empire that would have rivaled Francia. And they had bloodied a few noses in their time, as many empires are wont to do. The trouble the Avars ran into, though, was that one, Charlemagne saw them as a threat, two, they were pretty much right on his doorstep, and three, they weren't Christian. That meant that Charlemagne had motive, opportunity, and religious sanction to make a ruckus. And what a ruckus he made. Starting in 791, he launched a series of campaigns into Avar-held territories. 
And in 796, after five years of Frankish campaigns, they were pretty much obliterated. This was great news for Charlemagne because it demonstrated to Europe that he was the most powerful Christian leader in living memory, having given the business to both the Saxons and the Avars, not to mention holding an impressively huge chunk of land. Charlie was beginning to look a bit like an ancient Roman emperor, and that wasn't by accident. But regardless of how big of a deal Charlemagne was becoming, Offa of Mercia wasn't going to take any guff from him. He was a powerful leader in his own right. He was Christian, and so not nearly as in threat as some of Charlemagne's other neighbors. And he had the benefit of having the channel between Mercia and the Franks. So that might be why he wasn't as cowed by Charles as you might expect. He also might have just had enough and decided that it wasn't worth playing nice anymore. I say that because Charlemagne had repeatedly provided sanctuary to Offa's enemies. In fact, even though he had harbored the exiled king of Northumbria until he was strong enough to retake the throne, and he was harboring Offa's enemy Hringstan as well as Hringstan's retinue of soldiers, Charlemagne, some crazy how, tried to claim that it wasn't offering comfort to Offa's enemies. In fact, it was him just being friendly. And that wasn't the end of Charlemagne's interference. King Egbert of Wessex, who was deposed by Offa and his West Saxon allies, was still living in Francia under Charlemagne's protection. And who knows how many others were living out there. So yeah, Offa might have just been getting annoyed at his so-called friend, and that might be why when Charlemagne wrote to Offa, he described him as, quote, a dearest brother, end quote, probably in an attempt to soothe hurt feelings. But Charlemagne being Charlemagne, he couldn't resist listing off his multitude of titles in that same letter, and then just calling Offa, quote, king of the Mercians, end quote. Frankish diplomacy involves a great deal of backhands, it seems. Actually, from this letter, you get a pretty good sense of the awkwardness that was going on there. Early on in that letter, Charlemagne focuses on friendship, which was pretty normal. But he adds something that cracks me up. He says that he received letters from Offa, quote, at various times, end quote, and that he, quote, endeavors to reply adequately, end quote. Basically, I've gotten your letters, and I'm sorry I've been slow at replying. I'm really busy. You know how it is. But I'm going to try to do better in the future. I've written something very similar more than once in my life. But it looks like Offa was trying to reach Charlemagne for quite a while, and might be feeling a bit put out and also a bit annoyed by the unaddressed issues in the letters. From the tone of the letter, it looks like Offa had been writing with concerns over the harsh treatment that Mercian traders had been experiencing in Francia. Chances are, they were getting overtaxed, and maybe roughed up or had their goods seized. Merchants, as foreigners, should be under the king's protection. They weren't independent actors, but rather, they were the responsibility of the king, and they were reliant upon him. That's ostensibly the purpose of the tolls that they have to pay when they come into the kingdom. They're essentially paying to act under his auspices. But, if the local authorities had reason to believe that Charlemagne didn't care what happened to the Mercians, perhaps because he was still upset about the whole marriage thing, then the merchants would be largely left high and dry without much recourse. It was a nasty situation to be in. Charlemagne responded to this issue with complaints about apparently Mercian pilgrims who joined the pilgrimage not to worship, but to make a profit in trade. 
And you can see how that could happen, can't you? There's a caravan of pilgrims making a long journey. And so you join them, load up your cart with the food and provisions that they might need on the road, and then sell them at a profit. It's a stable market with high demand and with little competition. So on a business level, it makes sense. However, that degree of profiteering was not something that was appreciated by the faithful. And so Charlemagne let off a no. And this hints at how he felt kingship carried with it duties that went beyond the mere exercise of power. Christian kings were responsible not just for the temporal aspects of their kingdoms, but also for the spiritual health of their communities, which is why he was so involved in church reform, and also why he was very involved in the improvement and distribution of education, and why people speak of the Carolingian Renaissance that occurred during this period. Now, King Offa appears to have had similar views, or at least it might have appeared that way from the outside. His motives for Litchfield, the events leading to the papal legate, and the way he secured his son's succession are all really suspect. But to Charlemagne, at least in the letter, he describes Offa as, quote, a most devout defender of the holy faith, end quote. And he was definitely improving the state of education in England, though given how bad it was to begin with, it wouldn't be all that hard to improve. So it is possible that this portion of the letter was written with a tone of, we both agree that we should protect the spiritual health of our people, and the pilgrims really shouldn't be marketed to. On the other hand, the rest of the letter does involve a fair amount of finger-pointing, because Charlemagne also complained about customs evasion. Basically, he claimed that the Mercian traders were dodging the heavy tolls that were applied to them, with the implication being that if they didn't pay the tolls, then they hadn't earned the king's protection. So Charlemagne, in response to Offa's complaint, essentially was telling him that it was the merchant's own fault that they were getting roughed up, and that he had complaints of his own regarding those same merchants. Only after that did he even bother speaking about how merchants should be better treated in each other's kingdoms. Which even that is kind of funny, because he's basically saying, yeah, well, if anything bad happened, it is something we both do, right? Now, while his complaints might be true, any counselor will tell you that this is a poor conflict resolution style, and it typically leads to dysfunction. I mean, really. All that finger-pointing? That's not good. And to be honest, while I totally believe that office people might have been playing fast and loose, Charlemagne does seem a bit defensive here, and it isn't like he had a reputation for being entirely on the up-and-up himself. So chances are, both of them were still looking for a little bit of strike back over that marriage and trade fiasco that happened earlier. But now that Charlemagne was done with the merchant issues, he moved on to the tougher stuff. Namely, we have another exile, Prince Aidbert Prane of Kent. And he had fled to Francia out of fear of Offa. Which I suppose was pretty smart. Offa was not exactly friendly to the remains of the Kentish dynasty. But here's where it gets interesting. Charlemagne refers to Aidbert as a priest, but he also appears to be referring to a previous letter by Offa and says that some people might have differing opinions on the religious nature of the exiles. Now that's a bit convoluted, but it looks like what's going on here is that Offa, at some point earlier, had captured Prince Aidbert Prane, and rather than killing him, he ordered Aidbert to be forcibly tonsured in order to disqualify him for rule. So as far as Offa was concerned, 
problem solved, and all without having to shed any blood. But the trouble was that Aidbert Prane was seeking Charlemagne's help in getting an appeal. And that would be a problem for Offa, since it would mean that he would once again become eligible to rule, and thus become a threat to Offa. But no big deal, right? Charlemagne was Offa's friend. I mean, he keeps saying how they're friends, so he'll just refuse the appeal. Wrong. This is Charlemagne we're talking about here. So he told Offa that he had sent Aidbert Prane to Rome, where he could be judged by the Pope and Archbishop Aethelherd. It looks like the prince would get his appeal. That cannot have made Offa happy. And on top of that, Charlemagne made no promises to return Aidbert Prane to Mercia once he came back from Rome. Now, Charlemagne tried to cover this whole thing up in a veneer of pilgrimage. Oh, I'm not enabling an appeal. He's just going on a pilgrimage to the very place where he could get that appeal. It's totally a coincidence. But that's a pretty thin veneer. And Offa certainly saw right through it, just as most modern historians see through it today. Charlemagne was setting up a challenger that would be friendly to Frankish interests. Plain and simple. And then his letter goes from awkward to downright petty. It seems that Mercia had been purchasing, quote, black stones, end quote, from Francia. The black stones might have been Rhineland lava stones, which were used fairly widely in England for querns. Those are the stones used for grinding stuff up. They're really useful for processing grain, provided that they're the right shape. And the stones that were being sent to Mercia weren't cut to the right length. So Offa had requested that they make an adjustment for future orders so that they can be used properly. Pretty straightforward, right? And if Charlemagne was a normal person, he would have responded with, I'll let my people know, thanks for alerting me to the issue. But he wasn't a normal person. Instead, he continued on his tit-for-tat path and implied that Offa's request was unreasonable. Then he says that the cloth that England had been sending to Francia also needed to be cut to the right length. And he added, for good measure, that it was really shoddy cloth. I can imagine Offa reading this letter and saying, What the f*** is with this guy? It's just a recut request. Why is everything a pissing contest with him? And then Charlemagne ends the letter by mentioning that he sent gifts to the very seas of England, as well as a belt and a Hunnish sword for Offa, which came from his Avar campaigns, and also a gift for King Aethelred of Northumbria. And get this. Even the gift was a bit of a jerky thing for Charlemagne to do. If you think back to the culture episodes, you might see why. Gifts go in one direction. Kings are givers of rings. They give gifts. The gifts honor the giver. And Offa would have known this. Not only that, but Charlemagne gave Offa a sword. And that's cool. But Offa couldn't have helped but know the underlying message that came with sending a sword. That's the sort of gift that a king gives to his loyal retainer, not a gift between equals. To reinforce this interpretation, I should point out that Charlemagne also gave spoils of war from his wars with the Avars to members of the church and to other loyal nobles. This wasn't a friendly present to an equal. He was letting Offa know that he saw Mercia as a subject kingdom. This guy, right? Also, it seems from the letter that he sees England as only having two kings, Aethelred in the north and Offa in the south. And that's pretty interesting as well. 
Now, this is the first known letter between European kings about trade. And maybe it's just me, but it reeks of dysfunction. And it's all just so damn petty. Charlemagne was less than four years from being crowned the Roman emperor by the Pope. And those wheels were almost certainly turning at this point. He was supreme. And Offa was a small king across the channel who was no real threat to him. Behaving like this doesn't elevate Charlemagne. It actually makes him look small. And I think he needed to learn the lesson that many modern politicians already know. Once you're a public figure, you cannot get involved in flame wars. Because even if you win, you lose. Meanwhile, in Britain, King Offa was probably rather irritated by the letter he just received. And also the complaints about the quality of English wool. So he did what many frustrated English nobles have done throughout history. He punched a Welshman. That's right. Offa marched off and invaded Wales. That's how angry he was. Well, honestly, it isn't exactly clear why King Offa invaded the Kingdom of Devid, but considering that they had that enormous dike between Mercia and the Welsh kingdoms, there's a good chance that hostilities were far from over between the two. And so it seems that Offa and his warbands marched. Though, we aren't given details on how the campaign went, who was killed, who won, or where exactly they fought, other than the fact that it was in Devid. I suppose the scribes that year were just too busy looking for strange clouds or groups of dead birds to take much notice of, you know, inter-kingdom warfare. Speaking of warfare, it's been a while since we've talked about Northumbria. Last time they appeared, their warbands had given the Vikings the business. So what's going on up there? Well, King Aethelred, the king that was formerly exiled in Francia but now had returned, was still ruling in Northumbria. Or he was until the 18th of April, 796. Because it was on that day that a group of Aethelred's own Eldermen, led by Eldred and Wada, you know where this is going, they cornered the king and murdered him, and then placed Eldermen Osbald on the throne, who coincidentally was actually a friend of Alcuin. Shortly thereafter, Charlemagne received notice of the palace coup and murder, and completely lost his shit. From Alcuin's point of view, Charlemagne was ready to do something pretty awful. And while he doesn't say exactly what that was, based upon his prior actions, I think it's safe to say that it probably would have involved ships, soldiers, and a bunch of swords. Now, Charlemagne has always been pretty scary. But at this point in his life, he was drenched in blood, having recently devastated two massive pagan nations. So he was probably terrifying. And it wasn't like he was all that positive on the English kingdoms at the best of times. But thankfully, Alcuin was there to advise him. And that must have been one hell of a conversation. Because it seems like Charlemagne rather liked King Aethelred. And he was ready for some revenge. So how do you talk down an enraged, bloodthirsty leader who holds the only superpower in Europe? Well, we don't have a record of that conversation. But it seems that Alcuin really didn't like King Aethelred all that much, and saw him as immoral, self-indulgent, and unrighteous. So he might have been arguing that avenging a terrible English king simply wasn't worth Charlemagne's time, and that Aethelred had it coming. But whatever he said, it probably had to involve a good deal of finesse, considering how grumpy Charlemagne was about the English in general. In the end, though, 
Alcuin prevailed and managed to convince the Frankish king to just issue an order of take backsies on those gifts that he had sent to King Aethelred in his awkward letter to Offa. Now, that would take some doing. Messengers would have to be sent, awkward conversations would have to be had, but at least it wouldn't be war. Meanwhile, in Northumbria, the new King Osbald reigned for a luxurious 27 days. And then he stepped down before getting murdered himself. And Eilderman Eardwolf, the same Eardwolf, by the way, that was supposed to be killed by King Aethelred ages ago, but somehow survived, became the new king. And then he did something pretty smart. He got himself consecrated. So the new king Eardwolf was basically legitimized and sanctioned by God. I'm sure the hope was that this would finally put an end to the internecine warfare that was plaguing Northumbria. And we'll see how that works out. Shortly after that whole mess, back in Francia, Alcuin once again left Charlemagne's court. He had only just returned a few years earlier, following his three-year sojourn back to his homeland to broker peace. But he just wasn't destined to stay long at court, because he was soon named the Abbot of Tours. Now this might sound to you like Charlemagne was still suspicious of the old Northumbrian monk, due to that whole Offa business. Or perhaps that Alcuin had grown tired of Charlemagne's temper. However, judging by Alcuin's letters, it seems like he remained close with the royal family, and that his quick departure was probably more of a coincidence than anything else. But it does make you wonder who will pen Charlemagne's passive-aggressive letters in the future, doesn't it? And then, on the 29th of July, 796, after an extremely long reign, King Offa of Mercia died apparently of natural causes. But his line was secure. He had gone to great lengths to ensure that his son would have the strongest claim. Hell, that he'd be virtually the only person in England with any claim. And so Offa's life's work was complete. And as he had hoped, the throne immediately passed to his son, Egfrith. And according to a 13th century record, Offa was buried at the church that he founded, at Bedford. Now, it would be his son's turn to rule. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, the lot. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>